Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. You're very welcome to the latest episode of When Diplomacy Fails. Before we begin, I would like to point you towards a few things that have happened to me this week, just so you know where we're at in the world of When Diplomacy Fails. If you looked at the feed, guys, you would have noticed that a State of the Podcast address is out. And if you listened to that, you'd know that When Diplomacy Fails is on Patreon. That's all great. When Diplomacy Fails is on Patreon. I'm really, really excited. All that kind of stuff. But you see, here's the thing, okay? When a guy like me starts a thing like Patreon, they expect a small amount, moderate amount of success to gradually build it up over time to... Be somewhat pleased, be quite self-depreciating, all that kind of stuff. And that's fine. I mean, I expect to do that. The podcast is not world famous. Everyone else would start at the same level. I mean, think about it this way. Everything starts at zero at some stage. You start at zero likes on your Facebook page, at zero followers on your Twitter. You start at zero downloads on a podcast. I mean, it all makes sense. So when I started that zero dollars mark for the Patreon, I didn't feel bad. 36 hours later, though, so in other words, less than two days, literally I started it in the morning, and by the night time of the next day, I had smashed three records, I had raised $120, and i basically been forced into following something that I said I'd do, which was to establish a member's feed for the podcast. It's insane. I mean, like, I was so... I just, I don't even have words. Like, I I knew that you guys want, some guys said that they wanted me to start this for various reasons, but J.D. Mac, the, the support has just been incredible. I just can't believe $120 just, it's like it just poofed and appeared out of nowhere. And yeah, like, one of those people is Anna, one of them's my sister, one of them's my dad, but even so, that's still like $117. No, I'm just kidding. They were more generous than that. But yeah, it's mad. It really is. I'm going to have to be careful so that I don't ramble and, and turn you guys off, all that, all that usual stuff. But like, like, let's put it this way, okay? I'm recording this on, what day is it today? Wednesday. On, on like, Wednesday night, okay? To be more accurate so that this really, like, so that this really makes an impression on you guys. On Tuesday night when I went to bed, it said I had zero patrons. And, I, and I'd set it up on Tuesday morning. And I thought, yeah, that's fine. And then, like, now... Wednesday night, so here we are, like, the first goal is $25, we hit that, first, second goal was $50, we hit that, and then the third goal was $100, and it's like, I don't know, I, I, like, I'm speechless, I really am speechless, and this is only Wednesday, who knows what the situation will be like come Monday when this podcast is actually released, so two things come off the back of that, the first thing is, I will now be setting up a member's feed. I thought I'd have like three months before this eventuality happened, but clearly only I'll have a day or two to think about it. But yeah, I mean, I'm so busy preparing for... 
Wow, I nearly dro- I nearly completely ruined the surprise. I'm preparing for our surprise for our fifth year birthday in May, so I don't have so much spare time, but it won't be too hard to set up this member's feed. I'll find a way to do it, but it'll take about a week or two, so once it is up, I'll let you guys know on the page and promote then the Patreon in that way as well, so that you guys know that like there's something genuine listenable out there for you guys who really want to maybe jump ahead with the story or that kind of thing, so... Yeah, if you guys are interested, that'd be great. Also, I'd like to add, which kind of really ties into all that other stuff, When Diplomacy Fails is on Patreon, just in case you managed to avoid all the notices. And actually, it was kind of funny because these things kept on happening over the space of a few hours. I went from 0 to 120, so I kind of none of my Facebook posts made sense or did it any justice. I mean, I was showing my parents how my Patreon page was working and explaining to them all the different tiers and all that stuff. And then I exited out of the page and I went back into the page and I only jumped out of my seat because it jumped from something like 40 to $95. And I was like, whoa, it made me look amazing. But yeah, it's incredible, really, really incredible. So this ramble, rant, whatever you want to call it, I'm not, I suppose you couldn't really call it speechless because I keep on just word vomiting all over the microphone. But there you go. <laughs> I mean, the I, I can't say how much I appreciate it, guys. Like it. There's no words to describe it. There really isn't. You guys are amazing, and you've gone above and beyond already in the space, the short space of time, 24 hours. Janie Mac, who knows what's going to happen in 20 weeks, <laughs> however long this takes. But yeah, I, I mean, this is hugely encouraging, and I'm so, so happy and so proud, really. You guys really have stepped up, and there's genuine rewards out there as well. So if anyone's interested... Go to WDFpodcast.com and click on the Patreon button. You may be at that website anyway, because it's a pretty cool website, if I do say so myself. As the computer literate man, I set it up pretty much all in my lonesome. So, yeah, go and check that out. But also check out Patreon.com forward slash When Diplomacy Fails. Just search When Diplomacy Fails podcast in Patreon if you're that kind of guy. You can even get the app for Patreon. Look at me promoting Patreon. But yeah, so, Wow. Anyway, I better start this episode before you guys all get turned off, but yeah, the members feed is on the way, so stay tuned for that and everything else. Thanks so much for all your support, and you know what? I don't think you're even going to get hit with BFIT this week because you've just been so darn good. So thanks very much, Jamie Mac. Flip and enjoy the show, guys, okay? You're awesome. Welcome to episode 11. So we finally made it, guys. The episode in which the war is finally an open fact, the diplomatic dancing is over, and both monarchs begin to implement the plans which they'd been sitting on for so long. It was the confirmation of Johann de Witt's worst fears, and the beginning of William of Orange's rise to distinction in the face of adversity. The little republic had for years distinguished itself as a resistor, the state which would fight for its independence to the end if necessary, be that against Spain, England, or anyone else. Now though they faced a foe quite unlike any other they had faced, because this foe was motivated by the singular desire to destroy their independence, and quite unlike the previous dangers, this foe was actually equipped to deal such a crushing blow. In this episode, the opening months of the war are experienced with dizzying speed, as the French and their English allies move nauseatingly close to the nerve centre of the Republic, and town after town, province after province, Dutch statesman after statesman, falls to the invader, 
the rampyar, the year of disaster, had begun. Let's jump right into it as I take you to early April 1672. We are not waging war against your nation, but only against your king and his courtiers, who have valued your blood at six millions, a small price for the blood that your and our saviour has shed for us. We bemoan our common loss, and we dread to think what may happen when we envisage the possibility of the success of an enterprise which aims much further than at the destruction of our temporal welfare. Your king, a defender of the Christian faith, has made peace with the Turks in order to wage war on Christians, and in order to have his hands free against those who hold the Prince of Peace as their Saviour and Messiah? Make your prayers to God, that he may in his mercy either change the heart of your king, or else foil his designs. Anonymous response to the English declaration of war on the Dutch Republic, found in the pamphlet Considerations of the Present State of the United Netherlands, early April 1672. The situation was about as grave as Johann de Witt could have possibly imagined. The previous four years had hardly been years of calm, but they had at least suggested in their own way that, through diplomacy, the Dutch and English may be able to bury all rivalries and use their supremacy and naval power to pressure France if necessary. In the background to such suggestions were the rumours, accompanied increasingly by fact after summer 1670, that the French and English, contrary to the expectations and feelings of both populations, were in fact moving closer together, owing almost completely to the close relationship of the two cousin monarchs. De Witt would have known that in many ways the war was the design of these two monarchs and their closest advisers. In France that didn't necessarily matter, since France had neither the governmental structure nor the lessons of history when it came to war with the Dutch to discourage its actions. In the English case, though, De Witt and Conrad von Buningen, his English ambassador for much of the period, and Peter de Groot, his French ambassador as well, had hoped that through a combination of the Triple Alliance, granting limited concessions to Charles's nephew William, and anti-French feeling in London, that a terrible two-front war against its most formidable enemies could be avoided. Increasingly, though, as 1671 had worn on, these Hopes became more and more illusory, as the plain aggression of both powers towards the Republic was consistently and nakedly exposed. Thus, though the attack had come as terrible news, it is unlikely that De Witt was all that shocked as its coming to pass. In the dangerous circumstances of the age, the Dutch had made efforts to prepare, mostly under the orders of De Witt and his party, for what may be on the horizon. 
The military preparations hadn't been laden with success, mostly due to the selfish stonewalling of the provinces, as the Orangists sought the promotion of William III to the office of Captain General. This promotion was eventually given in February, and only then, it seemed, would the other provinces actually cooperate with Holland's vision of preparation. The Orangists maintained, much to DeWitt's immense frustration, the idea that England would be pacified through concessions to William. If DeWitt believed this at one point, he soon became convinced that no amount of concessions to William would ever placate Charles's ambitions. When Peter de Groot had written home as to Louis's belligerent replies to the concerned queries of the Dutch, DeWitt anticipated that the axe was soon to fall, and he suspected that the rumours of Anglo-French duplicity would soon bear fruit. The last weeks of peace had been frantic in the Republic, as DeWitt tried his best to rally supporters to the idea of increasing Dutch armaments, preparing its forts and improving its diplomatic contacts abroad. In light of the latter point, Peter Gale notes that by the time the war was declared, the only diplomatic success worth speaking of was the mutual assistance pact signed with, of all countries, Spain, feeble Spain, as Gale put it. The irony that the old enemies of the Spanish and Dutch were now allies out of necessity was certainly not lost on De Witt. Not only that, but the very fact that the Triple Alliance still existed on paper, but that such insurance was acknowledged as insufficient for Dutch security, would have struck De Witt as an abject failure of his own policy, forced into it or not. Whether or not he realised the extent to which the two monarchs had given him the runaround over the last few years, Certainly by late spring 1672, DeWitt and his party had come to accept that the Triple Alliance could save them from nothing. Thus DeWitt had instructed Conrad von Buningen out of London and into Brussels, from which the experienced Dutch diplomat could create at least a semblance of mutually assured security with Europe's other threatened power. Madrid at least seemed to have no illusions of the international situation, For all the talk at this time of Spain's lauded poverty and sluggishness, its agents remained tuned into the rumour and fact of the day. No official in Spain would have seen anything other than disaster for their interests if the Dutch were overrun, and thus they sought to reinforce the Triple Alliance by applying, quite publicly in fact, their own weight to a separate treaty with The Hague. The news must have been greatly appreciated in Paris. Louis was nothing if not still eager to resume where he had left off, and his war minister Louvois, who we met last time, probably intimated to Louis that Spanish involvement was a blessing rather than a curse. Rather than need to find an excuse to attack the Spanish Netherlands again, Louis could simply shift his attentions from the Dutch to the Spanish once either caved first. And cave they were expected to do. By the time of the declaration of war, Louis's forces had reached their peak at nearly... 130,000 strong. Facing them were the militias and small, professional, but much neglected army of the Netherlands. Combined with this pressure, it was expected that a one-two punch of a naval campaign alongside the English would tie up the Netherlands nicely. Once this was done, it was only a matter of applying the necessary pressure to that ingrate William of Orange, and the Dutch rump state would be recreated as a vassal on the edge of Europe. Following this, Louis's forces could roll over everything right up to Brussels, who would stop his conquest of the Spanish Netherlands if the Netherlands were already subjected. Everywhere he looked, Louis would have seen dollar signs, or at least whatever the sign for the French lever was. 
So it was that Louis' actual declaration of war on the 6th of April 1672, following suspiciously close to that of the English on the 26th of March, referenced the king's displeasure at the previous behaviour of the Dutch states and insisted that the glory of France could no longer be disrespected in such a way. The justification complete, in a vein that sounds not dissimilar to the your presence insults me line of civilization fame, Louis sent his well-prepared forces into action and the greased wheels of the French war machine whirred into life for the second time in less than five years. This time the scale was far larger, and to match this the French war plan operated on numerous levels. To begin with, the French army was divided in command, with a large portion under the ever-keen-to-prove-himself Prince of Condé, and the other under Marshal Turenne, that stalwart general from the previous campaigns of the Thirty Years' War and, of course, the War of Devolution, who had once been suggested by De Witt as a candidate, ironically enough, to lead Dutch armies instead of an orange captain-general. With a 100,000 men did the united French army, not yet split, mass and present itself before Maastricht on the 19th of May. Maastricht was perhaps the sole Dutch fortress which could reasonably be expected to hold its ground, and desperate Dutch officials poured men and materials into its improvements, hoping to stall the French for as long as possible with its use. Yet it wasn't merely French troops that the Dutch had to contend with. As we saw last time, French diplomacy had ensured that the tap of German mercenaries had been shut off to the Dutch, but that wasn't all that the French diplomacy achieved. The ever-ambitious and apparently Dutch-hating Prince Bishop of Munster, Bernhard von Gallen, sought to invade the Dutch province of Overijssel, just as he had in the Second Anglo-Dutch War. As before, the invasion caused mass panic and confusion, and by the middle of June 1672, Munster's troops had occupied much of the province with his soldiers and mercenaries. Elsewhere the news was equally bad. Peter Gale recounts that some fortifications were so old in the Republic that they hadn't been significantly altered or upgraded since they were captured from the Spanish in the 1620s. Furthermore, many of these fortifications contained crumbling walls, defective guns or didn't contain any gunpowder whatsoever. It was no wonder DeWitt had emphasised the need to reinforce the Republic's defences, and he wasn't alone in this, he understood that for the last generation the Dutch had so focused on fighting the English at sea that they had neglected their defences on land. This had been the crux of the reason why the Franco-Dutch alliance had been so beneficial, and why De Witt had for so long argued for that alliance. It didn't matter so much about the Dutch land defences when you had a large power like France guarding you. Now, obviously, things were much different. Reports were now proving the futility of a little republic like the Dutch in resisting such overwhelming efforts from its enemies. At the very least, De Witt and his allies now worked their peers in the Council of State, that Dutch body which took over administration of the republic in times of war and was filled with deputies from each province's parliament. And they tried to work the Council of State to send the fleet out and provide some kind of answer to the Anglo-French assault. In the event, due to the exasperating provincial bickering, the province of Zeeland refused to send its portion of the fleet out in May, which meant that the Dutch were prevented from landing a killer blow against the English before the combined fleet gathered nearby. Faced with such disastrous circumstances, De Witt again turned to Admiral de Reuter for help. He would be outnumbered once more, but it was imperative that he sallied forth and did something to show that the Republic wasn't finished yet. 
with the Anglo-French fleet gathering confidently offshore in preparation, DeWitt feared for a landing that would surround the Republic and box it in on all sides, De Reuter sailed forth, accompanied by DeWitt's brother Cornelius and the desperate hopes of the Republic blowing through their sails. On the 7th of June 1672, De Reuter managed to restore hope once again. Though the English sailed away before they could be heavily defeated, the attack, made up mostly by the navy of the province of Holland, had been a daring and an aggressive one which took the English by surprise. Judging by the relative inaction of the French portion of the fleet, though Paris would strongly deny that inaction took place, it had taken the French by surprise as well. The sight of the English fleet bearing the brunt of the Dutch manoeuvres set a pattern of inter-ally quarrelling which was to become a common theme during the early phase of the war. The idea that the French were not upholding their side of the bargain, at sea in particular, was to further sour relations and contribute to the anti-French feeling which already remained high. Cornelius de Witt, accompanying de Reuter in these campaigns as he had done during the raid of the Medway at the close of the Second Anglo-Dutch War, had been given pause for thought as he left. His brother, who don't forget was Johann de Witt, somehow found time to write to Cornelius and warned him of a troubling scene wherein residents in the de Witt's hometown of Dort had stormed the town hall there and removed the painting of the victorious Dutch at the Medway scene. You know, the one where they burned loads of English ships and, and basically humiliated the English in their back garden. The painting in question, which was removed by mobs, contained a triumphalist message which was heavily critiqued as proof of Dutch arrogance and intransigence and was actually explicitly mentioned like this within the English Declaration of This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. War. Once the painting was removed by the mob, it was burned, but not before Cornelius's head was symbolically cut out of the painting. 
The message was a strange one, sure, but it was also a strong one. The idea that the DeWitts were somehow to blame for what had befallen the Republic was already gaining ground, even though it had been the Orangists who had so manifestly failed to put petty quarrels aside for the sake of the greater good, the result of which was the chronically insufficient military state of the Republic. While the Dutch defended themselves as best as they could against a terrifying French advance, De Witt may have hoped that if he could just hold out, if he could just persuade his countrymen to hold out, then other powers in Europe would eventually come to the Dutch defence. Surely European opinion wouldn't allow France to take over the entirety of the Netherlands, especially with the Emperor's ties to Spain. Indeed, having just mentioned that, Austrian Habsburg agents were beginning to work on Emperor Leopold, once it was learned that a Spanish-Dutch assistance pact had been signed in late 1671. This agreement had made an impression in Vienna, and with the additional pressure of Brandenburg, courtesy of the cautious, slow-moving, but cunning, great elector in Frederick William, Dewitt could be hopeful that within a year at the most, the Austrian Habsburgs and thus most of Germany, possibly, would rally against the French. With such a rallying, more soldiers would be available to hire to the Dutch, but to reach such a situation the Dutch would have to defy the expectations of the Anglo-French onslaught, which stated that the Dutch would fold early and before any other power could jump to their defence in time, and they would have to demonstrate their tenacity to the continent by providing such a courageous foil to Louis' plans. Only by doing so could they inspire, De Witt believed, wider European resistance. If the Holy Roman Emperor Leopold was too concerned about Turkish moves to fully commit his territories and dependencies to war, and if it was expected that Louis may court the Ottoman Empire for the purpose of keeping the Habsburgs busy in Central Europe, then it wasn't difficult to predict the possibility of a large war on the horizon, the likes of which hadn't been seen since a generation before in the Thirty Years' War. For that to happen, though, Dewitt knew he would have to outlast the French onslaught and this was easier said than done. The Dutch Council of State sent out resolutions to arm its citizens, its peasantry and the provincial police forces, and used them to man the fortresses rather than the mercenaries which were nowhere to be found. These brave citizens would be reinforced by the small professional army that the Dutch could scratch together, a force of barely 15,000, and the resulting barriers of natural and artificial defences were hoped to do the rest. This was the plan, the only plan, that the Dutch could rely on. It would be fruitless to combat the French in the open with the size of the force that they possessed. The Dutch would be vanquished in a day, and the Republic would have been left wide open to further French advances. Yet even before the true extent of the French military capabilities were made clear to Dutch provincial officials, a great deal of panic was present, which spread like wildfire and was disseminated throughout the Republic so thoroughly that it seemed to virtually paralyse effective responses to the military crisis for two critical months. Not until late June, in other words, with the exception of the Navy's action, would the Republic be truly steeled to do what was necessary. For the opening months, the Dutch provinces as a whole greeted the unfolding situation in vastly different ways, mostly depending on where they were when the French struck. Holland insisted on holding every line, and made repeated requests for all forces to converge on Holland's outer ring of fortresses when these failed. Following these acts, the final desperate method of defence was the releasing of the sluices, essentially the opening of the dams which held considerable levels of seawater at bay. 
through this water, Holland's deputies, when they were able to cooperate and see eye to eye, believed the last hopes of the Republic could be saved. Of course, the idea of this made the other provinces in the Council of State outraged, and they all accused Holland in the Council of State and the States General of casting the other provinces to the wind. Cliques, exasperatingly enough, formed in the opening months of the war determined to oppose Holland's monopolising of the war effort, while some provincial officials flip-flopped between wanting to transform their country into a flooded wasteland or wanting to surrender amidst a hopeless situation. As Peter Gale perceptively noted, and as I just mentioned earlier, the Dutch statesman's apparent bravery or lack thereof when it came to debating what was to be done next depended heavily on where he was from. Holland tried to argue that whatever happened in the war, the only way the Dutch Republic could be rebuilt afterwards was through its funding, a fact which many provinces found difficult to stomach, even though Holland did by default provide most of the Republic's income. The idea that all forces should rally to the interior was a tough pill for many to swallow, and some of the inland provinces like the aforementioned over Esel, as well as Utrecht, Gelderland and Groningen, would be exposed to French armies from the outset, so they fiercely resisted the idea of giving up their lands in trust, essentially, to Holland. Provincial rivalries reached a high point at the worst possible time, and in my head the first six months or so of 1672 read like a disaster movie for the Dutch, from the collective refusal to band together in the face of the looming threat, to the resurrection of meaningless squabbles at the very worst of times, and when the Dutch could honestly least afford it. When I was crafting this episode, I had to start and restart numerous times, as I consulted the maps and geography of the region and proceeded to get more and more confused. Eventually, a kind of light bulb went off when I realised that, even if I could pinpoint where the twenty or so forts were that fell to the French and the Bishop of Munster in the opening months, I'd never be able to describe each one to you properly, and even if I did, such details would bog us down and disrupt the momentum of the story I'm going to tell, rather than add to it, so I reached a compromise. To mirror the efforts of Mike Duncan when he was trying to condense the Second Punic War into a digestible few episodes, or at least not bombard you with details, he skimmed over the five or so years when Hannibal captured settlements and the Romans flipped them back for five years. I'm going to provide you guys with a really simple image so that we're on the same page in the surprisingly dense Netherlands. Sound good? It should also be added that if you're a patron for this podcast in the tier level of Diplomat, otherwise known as giving $5 a month, then you will actually receive the script for this episode and this may all be clearer to you. There'll be maps in the script for that as well. So yeah, go patrons. Anyway, this strategy means you won't need to know the names of all the forts that Louis takes, unless I feel there's a real important one to examine, like Maastricht for example. Also, it means that I won't be forced to pronounce words that... I just cannot pronounce. At the same time, though, it means that my major focus, the war's disparate events, rather than Army A moved to Army B, will continue, and we'll all be able to grasp the general direction of the war. Because I won't be bombarding you with a load of names, you'll likely enjoy this section of the episode more than you would have if I just listed a load of forts you'd probably never heard of. If you're really sad right now because you're an expert on 17th century Dutch geography and wanted to follow exactly where Louis marched along your special map constructed especially for this particular episode, sorry to let you down, you big weirdo. 
The easiest way to describe the Dutch Republic geographically is as a sizable chunk of land in the corner of Europe, with Dutch ingenuity enabling swathes of land to be reclaimed from the sea, especially in the case of Holland, which was the largest, richest and most influential province in the Union. You know that already, but what you also need to know is that the Dutch Republic was bisected by two major rivers, the River Meuse, which flowed from southwest France, and the Rhine, which, as we know, began in the Swiss Alps. What you also need to know is that the Dutch, clever devils that they were, had built much of their defences along these rivers, and that the rivers ran parallel to one another, so if you picture it, they presented a good set of natural defences in depth from one another. If the French invaded, they first hit the series of forts along the Meuse, and then if they crossed that, there would be the forts along the Rhine. The Rhine River is a bit confusing because it conveniently splits into two different directions just as it reaches the Dutch southeast border. The two forks in this river head in different directions, with the lesser Rhine emptying into the sea just below Holland, and the larger river, named the Waal, going east into Germany. This fork provided yet another opportunity for the Dutch to build fortresses, and you have to remember as well that for much of the Thirty Years' War these rivers were the lifeblood of the Dutch for reasons of trade, and were the best defence for their republic as well, so they were well used to travelling along them and defending themselves along them, etc. Threatened again by land, the Dutch likely hoped that the series of larger rivers with their smaller streams, which we won't mention because they're too numerous, would protect them against France, as they had protected them against Spain before, but Louis had other ideas. Because the River Meuse began in France, Louis's two most important marshals for this venture, Condé and Turenne, who we've met before, could begin on different sides to the river, and follow its course into the Dutch Republic, mopping up resistance as they did along the way. So they began their river tracing activities from mid-April, a week after the war had been declared, with plans to cross over the River Meuse at a later point and join up on the right bank of the river, which would establish them firmly in Dutch territory. From there, having got past the first line of defences, the plan was to make use of the hazy land ownership of the era and cash in on the threats Louis had made in the years before to the German rulers surrounding the Dutch Republic. The first of these were situated in Liège, whose lands were owned not merely by the Bishop of Münster, how convenient, but also by other German princes who had parcels of land within it, and the Dutch, interestingly enough, who owned larger pockets. Within one of these pockets resided the impressive fortress of Maastricht, upon which the Dutch placed much of their hopes. That the Dutch owned lands outside of their seven provinces in Europe is another fun fact we have to accommodate ourselves with, These were called the Generality Lands, folks, at least I think that's how you pronounce it, and they were administered directly by the States General, or Dutch National Government. If it helps, you can imagine them as Dutch European colonies, even though this doesn't quite describe their strange status. The most important thing to remember is that Maastricht was in one of these curiously defined pockets, to the southwest of the immediate Dutch border. Nowadays, the Kingdom of the Netherlands is far tidier on the map of Europe, and the likes of Maastricht had been assumed into additional provinces, with Limburg and Brabant accounting for these further territories, and better reflecting the reality of Dutch culture and history. But in the 1670s, nothing really made sense, so we're left with a weird patchwork of states akin to the Holy Roman Empire's example on the Dutch border. 
the Bishop of Munster's domains snaked through them and essentially hugged the southern Dutch border, but in Liège the grey areas had enabled the French to build up stores in preparation for their planned invasion route. By going through Liège, the French could avoid the major fortifications along the Lesser Rhine, which they would have bumped straight into had they followed the expected route of invasion through the Spanish Netherlands. Would-be invaders along this route would have faced first the River Meuse barriers, only to traverse the difficult ground in between and be met with the even more impressive barrier provided by the Rhine, as we know. The Dutch historical experience in fighting the Spanish pretty much their entire lives stated that this defensive line made strategic as well as practical sense, and the artificial defence system of the Republic had grown up around it and was geared towards making the most out of it. But the French weren't invading from the Spanish Netherlands, and not only that, but with the likes of Vauban in the French camp, seeking better ways to avoid or bypass the better Dutch defences, by the time war was declared, the war path had already been mapped out for Louis' marshals, and it would have the effect of making the considerable natural and artificial barriers within the Dutch territories almost completely redundant. The question of how Vauban and the marshals managed to hand the tried and tested Dutch defences their own redundancy package takes a small bit of explaining, but once that's finished with, we'll be on our way to return to the bloody business of the day. As I've said, the Dutch Republic was bisected by the two major rivers of the Meuse and Lesser Rhine, but what I didn't mention is that Liège provided a handy means through which an enemy army could skirt around these rivers. Were they to follow this route, they would still have to face up to Maastricht, which resided within Liège in a Dutch-owned pocket, as we know, just trying to make sure we're all on the same page here, but they would also have to cross a thinner portion of the Rhine shortly after Maastricht. Following that crossing, the enemy would essentially be in German lands, but they would also be poised at the soft underbelly of the Dutch Republic, where fortifications were based upon far smaller and less impressive natural river barriers, and where the garrisons, expecting attack from other directions, were less well prepared, trained or equipped. It was along these defensive lines that neglect and apathy had set in rampantly over the years, which may sound strange since after all they did straddle the border with the Bishop of Munster and he didn't exactly like all the Dutch that much, but that was a comparatively recent development in the grand scheme of things of the Dutch historical experience. And if you think back to the Second Anglo-Dutch War, Munster had been pushed back by the other continental ally of the Dutch, the French, less than five years before. Seen in this way, these Dutch defences didn't have to be impregnable, certainly not as urgently as the defences along the border with the Spanish Netherlands had to be. Of course, times had changed, and had De Witt had his way, these fortifications, some of which hadn't been upgraded or would have been totally replaced. And he wasn't the only one who argued that, I don't want to make him sound like he was the sole reformer out there. But remember, these borderlands were in the control of other provinces like Gelderland, Overiesel and Groningen. If you're standing in the Bishop of Munster's lands, to the south of the Republic and looking from left to right, that's the order you would see them in. All these provinces, as a result of their geographic position, would be forced to bear the brunt of the attack. Historically, these provinces had insulated the Dutch Republic on land from any Habsburg attacks, while along the border with the Spanish Netherlands, the Thirty Years' War saw it became a battleground, and Zeeland, the southernmost coastal province, and on the border with the Spanish Netherlands, bore much of the Spanish assaults then. As the Dutch ensured their homeland's defences by capturing forts 
outside of their seven provinces to anticipate Spanish attacks, hence the capture of Maastricht, a day's ride from Dutch land proper. For a long time, the geographic positioning of the Dutch Republic, complete with its generality lands, had been its strength. This was because the Spanish never mustered enough strength to essentially do what the French were about to try and do, boldly march around the major fortifications and elicit the aid of the Bishop of Munster to attack the Netherlands in force, in total force, from their southern flank. It should also be added in a strategic sense that, if the Spanish had tried to do this and attack from the south, the Dutch would have counter-attacked west into the Spanish Netherlands, forcing the Spanish then to think on their feet and defend the Spanish Netherlands. But French land was too far away, and the sheer numbers of French armies invading from the south, in excess of a 100,000 by some counts, meant that Marshals Turenne and Condé, after they linked up across the Meuse on the 11th of May, 1672, under much pomp and ceremony, were able to simply swarm past Maastricht, almost totally ignoring its defences, but in reality saving it for later. You see, Louis didn't want a long siege to open his campaign. He wanted to capitalise on the elements of panic and terror playing out in the Republic by continuing with the momentum which had been gained. He was aiming, as we explained, to cross the thinner Rhine River, which was even thinner than normal thanks to light rains for much of 1672. Thus the two marshals brought their forces across, and after capturing a number of forts along the Lesser Rhine, the French king followed, crossing a pontoon bridge under even more pomp and ceremony, on the 12th of June. With this act, the entirety of the French army were now aimed at the soft underbelly of the Dutch Republic, and the Dutch defences, which they had relied upon for the past century, were virtually useless. The weakest and poorest provinces would now have to rely on outdated and severely limited fortifications, never meant to withstand the kind of pressure that they now faced. Added to this was the fact that Marshals Turenne and Condé's previous sojourn up the River Meuse had established a number of French garrisons in what were once important Dutch forts to the Republic's west. In short, the Dutch were virtually boxed in. As the French massed to the south, Maastricht was surrounded and would be plainly unable to provide assistance. Simultaneously did the Bishop of Munster capitalise and invade up towards the northeast, capturing countless Dutch villages in the province of Overijssel, while the French prepared to attack due north into Gelderland. As if all this wasn't bad enough, Marshal Luxembourg had collected the French-German mercenaries and prepared to march past the Bishop of Munster's forces into Groningen, securing the other two marshals' advances as he did so. The result of this three-pronged offensive was total collapse and a deep panic and depression within the Dutch citizenry, who searched for a miracle as DeWitt searched for soldiers to man the lines. Peter Gale, to capture the mood of the day, explains that by June things were looking grim indeed for the Dutch Republic, but that the French had yet to deliver the knockout blow which their numbers suggested. Gale wrote, If the French had continued their advance in the wake of the retiring state's army, they would certainly have been able to enter Holland in force, but the invaders' perspective, too, was clouded by superstitious fear of the fortresses, and while the Munster troops were able to take the Overijssel towns within a few days, the French were wasting precious days on the capture of fortresses along the rivers Isel, Rhine and Val. On the 27th of June, Louis XIV himself appeared at Zeist, the French headquarters near Utrecht. Peace negotiations had already been opened, and he was waiting confidently for the surrender. With the inner suburbs of the Netherlands smashed 
and perhaps only Holland spared disaster, with some provinces like Gelderland, Overiesel, Groningen and Utrecht losing virtually all of their land, and much representations of order in the process of a French occupation, we can't fault Louis for expecting that the Dutch would roll over now and spare themselves further pain. Yet, though the Sun King couldn't have known it, by late June, elements within the Dutch Republic were clamouring, on the one hand for peace, but on the other for stubborn resistance to the bitter end. Johan de Witt was determined to lead this latter party, even if it killed him. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.